Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, chapter 2. And you can find this on page 111 in the Pew Bible. This may seem like a strange place to turn as we are into the Advent season, but we did a couple of weeks ago, uh, looked at the first of the five offerings that begin the book of Leviticus. And there we were talking about the idea that uh, these offerings are based on the work of Christ. It's not that Christ's work is based on the offerings. It's the other way around. The offerings are here uh, given to us as a picture of different aspects of the work of Jesus Christ. And so as the, the better we understand these, uh, we get a fuller picture of the work of Christ on our behalf. And so I'm going to read chapter 2, and uh, then we'll see uh, what this grain offering shows us about the work of our Lord. Let's give attention to God's word. When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of fine flour and oil with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And if you bring as an offering a grain offering baked in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with the oil you shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering baked in a covered pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It is an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. As for the offering of your first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma. And every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads, and you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. Then the priest shall burn the memorial portion, part, part of its beaten grain and part of its oil with all the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. And there will end God's, uh, the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we think about it together this morning. Well, I've recently learned uh, in my work over at the university that a, a number of my colleagues, uh, people that I've taught with for years, are retiring 
they have their retirement dates down and it really causes you to think. I mean, first of all, uh, I didn't really think I was that old that I've been teaching that long, but this is my 28th year uh, teaching over there. And so uh, all this talk of retirement, it makes one uh, ponder uh, what, what you've been doing. And it does cause us to think about, uh, have I been investing my time in ways that please God, that are meaningful? Um, do I feel a, a sense of purpose in the work and what I've done? And oftentimes we get so caught up in just surviving one week after another that it's easy for us to, to lose a sense of purpose in our work, a sense of meaningful um, aspects to our labor and our lives often. And, and so we, we, can, we can question, how am I investing my time and am I doing it in a way that pleases God? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing uh, with my life? Well, Leviticus 2 helps us with this question because it here says something about your life and your life's work and how that you are to find meaning and purpose in what you're giving yourself to in life. And it really comes down to understanding that meaning and purpose comes from God. And it comes into whatever it is we do as his people. And so as we look at this passage and try to understand what's going on here in this offering, the main point I want you to see is that Jesus consecrates your life and your work so that you can be used by him both now and forever. And that's the encouraging thing, that he has an eternal plan for us to be working for him. And the call then is for us to commit our lives and our work to him with joy. And children, if you wanna draw a picture of this, you might just draw a picture of what's being burnt on the offering, uh, on the altar here. And uh, listen carefully for what it is that's burnt and uh, what the significance of that means. Now, the first thing I want us to notice as we begin working through the passage, and you do have an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along, is that Jesus' atoning work on your behalf calls for a response. So here we come in chapter two when anyone offers a grain offering. We come to the second of the five different offerings that are described at the beginning of this book. And remember we said that these, these first seven chapters are a manual of offerings that explain to the people how they are to do this. And the idea here is that you have individual worshipers that are either coming for themselves or their families and bringing these offerings. Now, after the last sermon, someone came and asked me, you know, how often would this thing kind of thing be done where you take a whole animal and you burn it all up? We read about that last time. And that's a great question. Probably what's in view is that these, this would be done as the families would travel to Jerusalem during the three annual feasts. Now I realize in the book of Leviticus, Jerusalem isn't settled, the temple isn't built, but this is looking forward uh, to what they're going to do. So probably when, when you would travel up uh, during these festivals, you would be coming, bringing an offering. And it's a great point. That's a, a massive amount of, uh, of uh, animals and, and, and we see here crops uh, being offered uh, to the Lord. Uh, so um, the idea here is that this grain offering that we're reading about, it sort of depends on the fact that there's already been a burnt offering. Now, oftentimes those two offerings are combined in the individual worshiper, but even if the person just brought the grain, understand that every morning, 
in the temple or the tabernacle, there was to be a lamb sacrificed as a whole burnt offering morning and evening every single day for the people. So whatever any individual worshiper brings to offer on the altar, that is being offered on top of the burnt offering. And that's really important to understand that the burnt offering is the foundational offering uh, to everything that's going on. And we talked about that last time. And you can read about it in chapter one, where there the worshiper would bring an animal. If it was a leader, it might bring an ox. Or, uh, but if it was a regular person, probably a lamb and would put his hand on the lamb, uh, identifying with it, and then would have to cut the lamb's throat, skin the lamb, section the lamb, wash it off, put it on the altar, and then watch the entire thing get burned up. Not any of it was to be used or eaten. And as you would sit there and watch this inferno of flesh and grease burning, you would be reminded uh, that that is what I deserve as a sinner before a holy God. And God has graciously received this animal in place of me. And the idea would be as the, as the smoke went up, uh, as the text told us, that this was a pleasing aroma that God accepted the worship. And so the blood of the animal covered the person's sins and the burning of the animal took away the wrath of God. And that, children, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about this word propitiation, uh, which we should have had a quiz on at the start of this one. But that has to do with turning God's anger away from us and God turning toward us in mercy and in love. And recognize that the Old Testament worshiper would not go through this giving a valuable animal and seeing it all burn up, watch it burn in the fire, and then just turn away and say, that was nice, let me go on with my life, right? That, that this actually meant something. And it, it reminded the person that every interaction with God was based on this incredible thing that God had done in covering our sins and receiving us uh, and receiving us with pleasure, uh, not with anger. Uh, there would have been a response that would be required, a, an, a, a response of gratitude. And as we talked about last time, this is exactly the case when we think about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the perfect lamb who came into the world and lived a spotless life. And he shed his blood to cover the blood, uh, the sins of his people. And he went into the flames and experienced the wrath of God in place of his people so that we could be forgiven and we could be received graciously by our Lord. And that requires a response on our part. I put a cross-reference in the bulletin from 1 Corinthians verse six, uh, chapter six, verses 19 and 20. And there Paul writes, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see how that works? Here is what God has done for you. Here is the appropriate response, that you glorify God uh, with your life. And that's very much what's in view in these sacrifices, that all that we have is a gift from God, and that requires a response from us, that we embrace what he's done for us, and that we live a life 
of gratitude, that the life we have is a life that he's given us as a gift. So atonement, the atonement that Christ purchased for you requires a response. That's sort of underlying what's going on in chapter two. Then we see secondly that the right response is to devote your life to God's, uh, your life and your work to God's glory. And, uh, and we are actually to do this joyfully. And this, this is what the, the grain offering is meant to picture. I know as I read through that, it seems kind of confusing. We should have had uh, Laura come up here and give us a discussion on baking, right? Because this is all this different uh, things that you're doing with flour and what's going on. But actually, it's, it's not that complicated. The point is that you're taking grain, and the, and the first part of the chapter is dealing with wheat, so you're growing wheat, you're harvesting wheat, you're processing it, and you're making uh, a fine flour. And then you can either offer the flour in its raw state, or you can cook it in different ways. You can bake it, you can grill it, you can fry it in a pan. And that's kind of what's going on in verses 1 to 10. And then at the end, in verses 14 to 16, it's talking about if you were coming earlier in the year and only the barley had been harvested, how you would deal with these fresh uh, barley uh, grains that you, that you had brought to offer. But the point is, right, that any person at, at any time of the year could offer some version of this offering. And so it, it's available to anyone, whether you like to cook in one way or another, and uh, you bring your produce. So the, the important thing is to think about uh, what it all means. Well. Uh, there's other symbolism here, right? Because you're bringing your grain, you're also to have oil poured over it or used in the making of it, and you're to put a little bit of frankincense. Frankincense is not edible. It's a type of incense that would be burned, and you're to put that as well on the offering as it's described here in verse two. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take it from his handful, take it from him a handful of fine flour and oil, and with all the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial, uh, that that's the idea. So all of this is prepared, it's given to the priest. The priest is taking a handful, let's say it's raw flour, and it's got oil on it, he takes up the frankincense that's put on it, he puts it on the altar, all of that is burned up, then the rest that's left, that goes to the priest, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. So what's going on? Well, obviously this has the promised land in view. When these, when these commands are given in, Le, in Le, Leviticus, they're, they're living on manna that's coming from heaven. They're in the desert, they're not growing things. All this has in view when they come into the promised land and they begin to have an agricultural way of life. And what we really need to think about is what does this represent to people who are living in an agricultural um, li living a li an agricultural lifestyle and surviving on that way. And, and if we think about it that way, it's, it's, it's pretty significant because wheat would represent to a family uh, a huge part of their labor and their investment over the previous year. When you think about all that would have to be done to plow, to plant, to weed, to water, uh, to harvest, uh, then to prepare, uh, the grain, so that when you come to offering pure flour or the flour that had been cooked, a ton of work had gone into it. And it had been the work of the entire family over uh, a period of most of the year in order to produce this flour. And so what the people are actually giving 
They're giving their work, but they're not only giving their work, they're giving the thing that they would be eating, uh, the thing that sustains them and keeps them alive. And so it's actually a picture of them giving their very, their very lives as an offering to the Lord. They're, they're offering the fruit of their labor, which they have poured out over the previous year. And this is why probably in the old King James translation, instead of grain offering, it calls it a meat offering. Again, meat just being your sustenance, what it is you survive on. And this is what they're giving as an offering to the Lord. Now, there's a little debate over what do the frankincense and oil stand for because uh, frankincense especially was expensive and it was something they had to purchase. They couldn't make it. And the best explanation of that that I've seen is, is one that says this is a picture of joy. It's a picture of joy. And we know there are references to the oil of gladness, as say, for example, in Psalm 45, that oil can be a picture of joy. But... Um, one of the things you read, when we, if you read farther into the book of Leviticus, in the offerings that were for sin, that involved lamenting over our sin, they were forbidden from adding oil or frankincense to those offerings. And it does suggest that here there's an element of celebration and joy as we give this to the Lord. There's a really impressive statue of Hoagy Carmichael over on campus outside the auditorium. And it's Hoagy Carmichael at the piano uh, working on some composition. Incredible detail in that bronze statue. And you can watch on YouTube uh, a, a time-lapse video of the artist, Michael McCauley, making that statue over a course of a year. And it's really fascinating. But for a year, he poured his life into intricately making this picture. He had a large photograph he's using as his model to build this life-size statue of a piano and a man at the piano. And at the end of that process, he's in essence giving part of himself uh, for this. Now he can walk by, he can see it, but he's given uh, his life for a year to produce this and then joyfully, he turns that over to the university. Um, he got paid for it, of course. But, uh, but the point is, he invested an enormous amount of his time, his talent, and his energy to produce it. And that's very much what this is about here. It's about people taking not a piece of art, but what they're actually living on. They need to survive to put in their mouth. And they're giving it over and with that, they're giving, in essence, a piece of themselves. It, it represents all that they are and all that they've been doing over the past year. And you may think about the mundane details of your own life, right? Changing dirty diapers, uh, cleaning up messes, uh, dealing with difficult coworkers, uh, dealing with irate customers, difficult people, answering gobs of emails that just never seem to end, filling out charts, caring for others in need, running endless errands. And uh, what you're seeing here is whatever it is you're doing, you're giving your life to, uh, you're, you're offering that here to the Lord as a gift, as a tribute. And this is one reason why 
the translation grain offering is actually slightly misleading because the word in the original language just means a tribute. You're bringing a tribute. This is like what a vassal would bring to the king, a tribute. Now, because it happens to be grain, uh, it's been translated as grain. But this could be any tribute that we offer to the Lord. And we're encouraged to do this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, Paul says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Paul also writes in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, there he references a different type of offering, but notice he talks about his whole life as a type of offering that's being given over to God. And this really is a key aspect of how we find purpose and meaning in whatever it is we're doing, is to understand we're doing it as a gift to the Lord. And it could be very mundane, and it could seem like it's not exciting at all, and who cares? And yet this is what God has for you. And you're offering it to the Lord as a token of your life. And if you forget that, boy, is it easy for frustration and boredom and lack of contentment to come into your work and your daily life. You see no purpose in it at all. But understand, these people were just simple farmers, and they were being reminded here that they could give their life and their work as an offering to the Lord and have it be received by him. Well, thirdly here, we're reminded that it is Jesus' perfect life and work that consecrates your imperfect life and work. So as redeemed people, the, the people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to be completely devoted to serving the Lord and they were to offer their lives before him free from any traces of impurity. And so this is why in these instructions in verses 11 uh, to 13 that are kind of general instructions, no matter how you give this flower and what form it comes, it says, none of it shall be made with leaven, nor any honey in any offering to the Lord made by fire. Now there's, it, the Bible's not against yeast, uh, so those of you who like your cookies and your breads, it's, that's not the point here. Uh, but leaven was a sign of something. It was a metaphor for something. And we talked about that earlier in the service. Um, when Jesus said to the disciples, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it seemed to be kind of a, a, a symbol of, of corruption, uh, fermentation. And that's where the idea of the honey is in there as well. And so these things are a figure of sin. That really is the point, is you're to offer your life and your work to the Lord free from any taint of sin or corruption. Uh, that's the idea. You're to have a pure life and a pure work to offer to the Lord. And of course, if we think about it that way, we know we cannot do that. We are absolutely incapable of offering work that is genuinely to, as unto the Lord. Because so often we're working to please ourselves and not to please God. And we work one way when our boss is watching us and another way when he's not or she's not. We're often short-tempered with other people at work. We're critical of those who are around us. Sometimes we grumble and we complain or we're resentful about what we have to do and we don't like doing it. Sometimes we're going through the motions. Sometimes we're very lazy. And sometimes we're doing it all without the contentment 
that we should have. And so we can't come before the Lord and say, here's my pure offering, my leaven-free work that I offer you, Lord. We can't do it. And, and neither could the people in the Old Testament. And so what happens to this offering helps you to understand that. Because as it's given up, the priest takes a portion, as we read, and he throws it on the fire. So some of the oil, some of the grain, and all of the incense he puts on the fire. And in the text, this is called a memorial portion. The priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. That's from verse 2. And understand that this is a token of the whole offering. Verse 3 tells us the rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons, it is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. And I think what's going on here is the part that's burned actually makes the whole offering that remains holy. And, uh, and being most holy, uh, it had to be consumed in within uh, the tabernacle precincts there. And so I think what this is trying to show you is you are to offer your life and work to the Lord as a sinless gift, untainted, and yet you cannot do it because your life and your work aren't like they should be, and yet God accepts the perfect life and work of Jesus in your place. Jesus who came not complaining, not fighting against God, seeking God's glory in everything that he did and fulfilling God's purposes for him perfectly. He was never dishonest, he was never lazy, he never did the wrong thing, never wasted his time. God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And it's Jesus' perfect work which is consumed in the flames and it goes up as a pleasing aroma before the Lord and that is what then makes the rest of the offering most holy and has, is appropriate for the inner sanctuary of God's dwelling place. And that's really incredible if that's what it's showing us. The perfect work of Jesus is the memorial portion that makes our lives and our works holy before the Lord, acceptable before the Lord, not because we have worked perfectly, but because he has worked perfectly. And you see why this is very appropriate for us to think about during this time of the year when we reflect on the incarnation of our Lord. He had to come and work and live a perfect life in our place that he could be this memorial portion for us. So Jesus offers his perfect life and work so your imperfect life and work can be accepted and received by God. Well, then we see here also incredibly, God uses your life and work as a part of his work in the world. So look again here at what happens to the rest of this offering. As it says in verse three, the rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. Uh, if you turn over, I put a, a couple of verses in your outline from Leviticus six, verses 14 to 16, where it talks about this uh, offering again. It says, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense, which is on the grain offering. And he shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. 
and the remainder of it Aaron and his sons shall eat with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it. And so the lives and the labor of God's people fed and sustained the priests. Uh, that's, that's really the point. That was one of the major functions of the offerings. The priests didn't have their own land. They couldn't support themselves. They depended on the offerings of the people. That's what kept them alive. That's, what, uh, that's how God provided for them. And we might say, well, why didn't God just make a provision that everyone needs to have a priest and his family over for dinner once a week? And that's how we'll take care of the priest. That's how we do it in our congregation here. Uh, we, we invite people over for dinner. And, and the reason is very clear because the symbolism here is that the people give what they have to God and then it's God who is feeding the priests. It's not the people, it's God using the labor and lives of the people to feed the priests. And, and that, that God wants that to be very clear. He is the one who is feeding them. And probably this explains then why this is such a blessing that they can bring raw flour, they can bring flour cooked in all these different ways, or depending on the time of year, they can bring barley. That the priests aren't destined to only eat, you know, dried crackers all the time, all year long, that there's a variety in the way God is providing them. But understand, this is actually how God feeds you as well. God is at work out in the world. I don't think any of you uh, provide all of what you need to eat. I mean, we don't have any, uh, even the, the, the sort of micro farmers among us, they have to depend on things from outside in order to make their food. And this is the case because God's feeding you, but he's doing it through other people. And uh, this is such an incredible blessing. As you think about this, what it says about your work, it says your work is actually completing the work of God in the world. Now, it may not be in food production, but whatever it is, are you building buildings? Are you raising children? Are you teaching school? Are you volunteering at local agencies? Kids, are you playing with your friends in the neighborhood? Are you playing on sports teams? Or whatever it is you're doing, God is using you in the lives of other people. And this is a great encouragement to you that your consecrated life, as Christ has consecrated it, is important in God's running of the world. And the world may tell you what you do is not important and not significant, but God says otherwise. God says he's using you to accomplish his good purposes. And then finally, we see here that your consecrated life and work are a reminder of God's eternal promise to you. So the other little piece that's supposed to be a part of every one of these grain offerings is salt. Verse 13, every offering of your grain offering, you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to have salt in your offering? Is this just a thing of, uh, regarding taste, uh, to make it taste better? Well, you have to understand that to them, salt was the primary preservative. There wasn't refrigeration in those days, and if you wanted to keep things, you used salt. And from their standpoint, salt was virtually indestructible. 
Uh, I'm sure Moses didn't exactly know this, but the melting point of salt is around 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit uh, when it turns into a liquid. It, it is a very high melting point. And so for all intents and purposes, salt is indestructible. So when God talks about the salt of the covenant, what he is saying is that my covenant relationship with you is permanent. It is eternal. It is never going to change. I put one example in your outline from 2 Chronicles 13, 5, just to see how the, the eternal aspect uh, and this covenant of salt connect. And here it says, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever to him and his sons by a covenant of salt. So speaking about an eternal king, which we know is our Lord Jesus Christ, but that's a covenant of salt, a covenant that is eternal. And understand, this is because God has already taken these people to be his own. And he's given them this system uh, whereby they live in his presence. And they want him, uh, they, he wants uh, his people to come before him recognizing that this is an eternal, eternal relationship. And the essence of the covenant, and it's repeated throughout the scripture, God says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. That's the essence of his promise. And of course, we see how that's primarily fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes to live among us and then when he is exalted to heaven, sends his Holy Spirit to live with us. But this, this is the promise. And these worshipers would have understood that this wasn't just a temporal promise, that God would bless their labors in the here and now, in the land of Palestine, which they were preparing to go into, but that this was a promise forever, that God was going to receive and bless their labors eternally. And the book of Hebrews tells us this straight out. It tells us that these Old Testament figures were looking for a heavenly, eternal reality. I put in your outline from Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, where it talks about the Old Testament believers. And it says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, but now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And this was what they were doing. They were offering their labor with the expectation that they would be serving God throughout all eternity. And this very much is how you need to think about this as you offer your own labor and work, your lives before the Lord as a joyful gift in gratitude for his love for you in Jesus, that he's calling you to live for him now, but recognizing that he promises to give you perfect eternal work to do for him work that is free from all the frustrations and the struggles with meaninglessness and the questions that we all have now, a work that is perfectly suited for who you are and who he's made you to be, that you will be working for him throughout all eternity, using your gifts perfectly to fulfill his plans in a new heaven and in a new 
earth. And the evidence that he's going to do that is the fact that he's in work in your life now and that you have a relationship with him now. This is, a, in the sense, a down payment on his commitment to be at work in your life, your consecrated work throughout all eternity. Uh, one of our family's favorite movies is the, um, the movie Chariots of Fire about the Olympic runner, Eric Little. And there's a very famous line in that movie where Eric is getting a lot of pushback because he's invested so much time into preparing for the 1924 Olympics and his family were missionaries in China. And so as he's getting a lot of pushback on the time he's spending training for his running, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Not entirely clear that Eric Little actually said those words. Those are in the movie. But what is clear is that is the way he lived his life. Um, the best biography on his life I've read is titled God's Joyful Runner. And it traces his life. He was an international rugby player playing for the nation of Scotland. Uh, then he became a track star, eventually an Olympic gold medalist, and then a missionary in China. And the last part of his life, he was in a prison camp run by the Japanese because he refused to leave China. He sent his wife and his children home, but he stayed. And in the internment camp there in China, he joyfully invested his life into planning games for the children that were there, just to keep them active and to try to keep their spirits up. And so it really didn't matter if he was on the, the world stage doing something that would have gotten him fame and fortune, or if he was just a lowly, um, a lowly person in a prison camp trying to help children pass the time better. He gave his life as an offering. And he died in that camp at age 43. And, um, you know, that was the end of it. But that wasn't the end of it. Because that kind of a life where you're giving yourself out, whatever you're doing, whether it's mundane, whether it's high profile, that is an offering to the Lord, understanding uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect work takes our humble efforts at whatever we're doing. And he perfects those. And his perfect work in your place makes that acceptable to God. And that's offered to God as a gift that God receives and then God promises to use that now, but also throughout all eternity. And so we have every hope uh, that we, as we seek to serve him now, uh, to the best that we can, we do so knowing that our work's accepted in Christ, it's perfected in Christ, and that the promise is we will serve God throughout all eternity, doing exactly what he made us to do. And uh, that's the point of the grain offering. And uh, as we think about our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we see the one who sanctifies our life and work so that we can live for the Lord with joy. Let's pray and we'll ask him to help us do that. Father, we confess that often when we read these passages that uh, 
contain obscure rituals and we're not quite sure exactly what's going on. It's hard for us to understand how that relates uh, to our lives. And yet we do see here, Lord, a picture of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see people offering up uh, their lives and their work to you. And we see that being sanctified and consecrated by the perfections of our Lord Jesus. We see his work going up as a pleasing aroma to you. And we see then that our work is accepted by you and it's used by you. And Lord, we thank you that your promises to us are eternal. And that's why salt was added to the offering, that this wasn't just a temporal blessing the people were seeking, but they were consecrating themselves to serve you throughout all eternity. And God, how we thank you that through Christ that is possible. We thank you that our Lord died in our place and lived in our place so that we could know you. And we pray for any among us who don't yet know you, that you would draw us to love Jesus so that we might offer our lives before you as a fragrant gift, recognizing that it is the Lord Jesus who sanctifies our feeble efforts. Lord, help us to be able to see these things and so give us hope and joy and a sense of purpose in in whatever we do, uh, whether it is the most mundane thing or even the most difficult thing, that you would give us strength uh, to view those things the way you view them. And uh, Lord, that we might be pleased then uh, to serve you with joy. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now we'll uh, respond back to the Lord by singing from Psalm 144, selection B. And here's a Psalm that speaks about uh, the people's labor and asking God to bless it, there's a, recommend, there's a recognition that apart from God's blessing, none of our work and our effort amounts to anything. Uh, but you'll see here it talks about uh, our children, what they would grow strong and be faithful, that our crops would fill up our barns, that our herds would multiply, that there would be peace and blessing. And this final promise, oh happy people, who can say they have the Lord to be their God and we recognize that all that we are and all that we do is his and we want him to know that. Let's stand and we'll sing one for